Welcome to Talk Story, giving space for stories unheard. I'm your host, Alec Brownridge. The theme for this month is healing. Healing can happen through so many different avenues. Even play can heal as we found out last month. This episode, our guest shares the importance of humor and choice in the healing process. After our outro, you can listen to a beautiful breathing meditation from our guest. Without further ado. My name is Jillian Dooley. I, how would I describe me? I would say I'm, I'm an incredibly empathetic person who has experienced a lot of pain and heartache in my life. And so my life as an adult and who I am now is very much centered on helping, on creating the kind of environment around myself where people can either self-heal or take a moment away from what they're going through or the hardship of their lives. Um, And sometimes that's through humor or sometimes that's through um, sweating it out. Because I'm a yoga instructor, that sounds weird if you don't have the context of me. (laughs) Just like, I just make people sweat, really. Um, Or even if it's through, like, just really diving into, like, what do you want? What's your life like? And and asking tough questions. So I kind of become, I'm a chameleon in a certain way when it comes to the people that I'm around and what they need. Um, But at the same time, I've learned to be a little bit more true to who I am, which is, you know, a funny, caring compassionate and empathetic person yeah. was that good it was great <laughs> it was awesome <laughs> let's, let's start off with the idea of how, of how have you used humor to heal right know? yeah i mean i think i think it's also good to understand that i also use humor to deflect my therapist will tell you that i use humor to deflect a lot of the time um but i think that there's something so healing about about laughing, even just on a physiological level, because it it releases endorphins into your brain, and it and it gives your mind that second to like kind of breathe, and go, oh, okay, M- maybe things aren't as bad as as that little voice or that vagal nerve in the back of my head or in my actual body is making it out to be. Um, so I think that there's something incredibly healing about that, and also not taking yourself so seriously. It's hard to laugh and still take yourself seriously. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think we live in a society where, where it's easy to get very caught up in, in the importance of what you're doing. And it's important. What you do is important, but I don't think it's like... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example without like dissing somebody. But like, I'll, as a yoga instructor, what I do is important, but I'm not saving the world. You know what I mean? And so the moment that I take myself so seriously that I can't make a joke, and I can't make a joke at my own expense, is the moment where I have to take a step back and get on my mat and be like, all right, Jillian, you and those, you and that 1,062 Instagram followers need to get back on your mat, have a conversation with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean, that's definitely something I I see taking your classes. It's always it's it's always feels the lightness. Even mm-hmm. when you're even if the theme you have for class is something that is is very heavy and powerful, right. you still you still create that light environment. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's important as, especially like I'm somebody who, who dealt, has dealt with a lot of hardship and a lot of tough things and, and humor was what kind of kept my head afloat and finding those moments of, you know, hard, but at the same time, like when you laugh, you breathe. And when you laugh, you have the opportunity to kind of take a step back and, um, and I think we can, I think we can work through things much easier if we do it with a light heart mm-hmm. than if we do it with a, with a heavy heart or with a lot of importance. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, you, it's, it's really interesting the idea of, of, of the, that, the seriousness is, is important for growth, but the humor is also important for growth. Yeah, they go hand in hand. And you kind of need both. Right. Yeah. yeah. So did you always see it this way? Or like what, like how did that develop in you? Yeah, I mean, I think, so it's funny. I've always been a really funny kid. Like even when I was really, really young. Like my mom tells a story about me being, we were on a train in Boston. And I'm like five or four. Like I'm just, I don't understand levels of adultness or like in humans, like Gina's baby. I'm like, he should be talking soon, right? And she's like, Jillian, he's a year old. I'm like, so when's he going to get a job? Um, (laughs) But I was like four or five. I don't know the age that babies talk and have sentences. Um, I was that age. And I was just like making people like crazy laugh on the train, like strangers. So I've always really dealt with a lot of depression and um, an eating disorder and, and things like that. I was anorexic. And um, when I was 12, I was hospitalized for the first time for it. So I attempted suicide and um, was brought to a crisis center in Birmingham. I'm from Alabama. And um, Birmingham, England. Wouldn't that be so, like, just like a three for a curveball? Like, wait, you're from England? Um, but I... So I got put into the crisis center there and, and so I'm with all these other kids that are just like me. Cause it's like, you know, I think the cutoff age was like nine to 18. So I'm with all these, I'm with like five other kids that are just like me that are dealing with like some serious stuff and have gotten here for a reason. And it's not like I eventually like lived, lived in a clinic for a while, but this was just like a crisis center. Like you're there for maximum 10 days. And then they decide what to do with you. And that was really the moment that I realized like, wow, when I make them laugh, the whole energy changes in the room. So like, we'll be in group, we'll be in group session. And if I make a joke about something, or if, if somebody makes a joke about something, it's that moment after the laugh where everybody just kind of goes, and there's that release. And I remember very vividly having that, having that moment in Baptist Montclair of, of, you know, I'm, and I'm 12 years old living in a hospital and having that moment of, oh, this is a thing. And then I kind of would have it. And, um, when I lived, when I lived in the Menninger clinic, when I was 15, I lived there for five months and it was the same thing there. I, I became kind of the, the, the clown, but we were all kind of clowns, but you know, like I, when there was something that was really, really heavy, it was easier to to laugh for a moment. And then that person could always be like, okay, well, this is how I'm actually feeling. Cause that room, that safe, that space now feels safe. If that makes sense. 
I guess there's, I don't know enough about laughter as a physiological thing, but I bet I there's... Either. I wish I knew more about it. But there's the, I, there's that, you laugh, I laugh at the same time. You do mm-hmm. feel like there's that connection. That's and there. how awkward it is if you laugh and the other person doesn't laugh. You're like, oh, I thought And that, that just that opposite feeling of like, <gasps> okay, I guess. And you almost feel like somebody's holding onto your throat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're almost like, <gasps> oh, okay, I guess it wasn't funny. Mm-hmm. Happens a lot to me when I teach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause sometimes people come in and they're not interested and you also have to learn at what point do you honor what they're, you have to meet them where they are. Hmm. And so without compromising yourself, how do you meet them where they are? How do you usually do that for like what you said? Like if someone is not in, the not com- into it, I'll, I'll stay lighthearted, but I won't make like the jokes that I made today in class. I wouldn't make. I would keep it very lighthearted, but I would also honor the fact that they're not interested. And I can still be lighthearted and be true to myself without making jokes about Fifty Shades of Grey. What, like, in, in regards to that whole idea of, of, actually, of meeting, of meeting somewhere with that, mm-hmm. and, but being authentic to you. Right. And it seems, it seems like you have to, to be able to help heal and, no, and and then also especially doing therapy, right? Right. You have to be authentic to yourself before Absolutely. someone can authentic to you. Um, do you always felt that, or like what? No. Tell me, like how did you get, begin begin well, that process? So especially after I came out of the Menager Clinic, the, it's a great clinic, and I highly recommend it if somebody's going through something. But they didn't quite set you, set you up for like how to be a real human being. They set you up to like how to be like the absolute best version of yourself, but no one's always the absolute best version of yourself. So like I came out of Menninger's and I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to self-harm anymore. And I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to have issues with anorexia. Understanding that anorexia is something that you never really fully recover from. It's something that you always manage. It's something that you manage. Um, and I was very confident that I wasn't going to ever use drugs again. Um, but I didn't know how to find that middle ground between here's this well-adjusted young adult that I am and also reconciling this really messed up young adult that I was. And even when I went into college, I was still trying to figure out like, how do I represent myself in a way? But even like when I met you, like when I like just barely opened up to you about who I was, like my past, it surprised you. A little bit, right? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Because, I mean, yeah, you can see the scars on my arms and things like that. And you kind of have an idea of I was probably a goth kid at some point from the septum <laughs> ring and the tattoos. But but most people don't assume that, it, that I lived in a mental hospital when I was 15. And that, you know, I'm a trauma survivor and all these other things. And so I had to learn what's important about what I went through. And the important thing about what I went through is understanding that everybody has the right to feel the way that they feel. And everybody should have the space to feel the way that they feel. And also have the opportunity to move past and move into something else. And given, and so that's why I say you gotta meet them where where they are and like crack open the door. So like hot power fusion is a, is a class that 
people take very seriously. And because um, it's a set sequence and so people take it all the time. And I will make like a tiny joke and it's me cracking open the door. And if people laugh, I'll be like, cool, I'm gonna open up the door a little bit further. If people don't laugh, I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna wait. And I might make another joke. And it's again, tiny, little crack of a door. And if they're just not interested, it's like, okay. You know, I can honor the fact that that's not what you're here for and that's you, that this is your time to, whether it's wallow or just focus and you're not interested. And that's, and that is your right as a human being. All I can do is offer you my skills and crack open that door and it's your choice to open it up. And it's the same thing with, with healing. Until I made the choice that I wanted to get better, I, I was hospitalized almost every month or every other month from the age of 12 until 15. My parents' insurance bills must have been astronomical. Like I think thinking about that now as like an adult, like like biting my nails over going to the doctor over my torn hamstring. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I, if I had a kid just like constantly getting put into a crisis center, I must have hit my deductible real quick. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Um, you have to make the choice. You could have the best doctors, you could have the best therapist, but until you make the choice that you want to get better, it's just people throwing stuff at you and hoping that it sticks. Yeah. That's, that's such an interesting thing, the idea of, because I was wondering like how, like, the idea of choice and like, what, what's that impetus for choice, right? Because mm -hmm. as you said, you know, it was just that, that it, it could be a, a most fleeting moment. Yeah, they call it a moment of clarity in Narcotics Anonymous. Really? Yeah, it's usually the moment where you hit rock bottom, I believe. I never really went. Uh, yeah, that makes, I mean, it's, it's so, it's, it's unexplainable, right? Mm -hmm. In a way, it just kind of, some people have it, some people don't, yeah. you know. Um, but th there's that, that blessing that you had it, right? And that, right. Like, and, and, there, and therefore, and then that, I think that moment of clarity, but then that idea of like how then to stick through it. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a super, I think the easier decision would have been to let me die. Because at that point, it's like, I'm already going on that path. It's going to happen. I mean, my mom stopped going to church because she would just sit in church and be like, this is where the funeral will be. Hmm. Like, that's how bad I was. And so, I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. But I think for me, once I made that choice and we decided to send me to Menninger's, because I had a hand in like choosing where we went. I mean, I was, I was like, this place looks fine. Cool. And so, um, I think for, for me, it was, I mean, it's always, I mean, I, it's a constant choice every day. I have to wake up and make the choice because especially from some of the things that I've been through, you know, I survived sexual assaults. I survived other things and, and that's something that I live with. And so it's waking up and making the choice, like, Am I going to stay in bed today and, and mourn my, one of my, the best friends of my entire life who died of a heroin overdose? Or am I going to get up and am I going to put my pants on one leg at a time, my yoga pants? <laughs> and am I going to take this and share it with others? And, and even as a, even as a 15 year old, it was, it was that same thought of, 
okay, I'm waking up today. How do I have the power to decide how I want this to go? And I have the choice. And I had the extreme privilege of getting the best care. And not everybody gets that. And so it was also me waking up and, and realizing what I have is a gift. Because not everyone is this lucky. And I can either squander it or I can do something with it. And that's why I started teaching yoga. Because I wanted, I wanted other people, I wanted to give people this, the same kind of space and the same and a similar opportunity and a very, very small level understanding that I'm not a therapist. And that your yoga practice can be such a great addition to the healing that you're doing in therapy. Hmm. If that makes sense. Staying in my, in my scope of practice, I am in no way a therapist. I am not equipped to deal with people's trauma. But what I can do is help people on a physical basis because trauma lives in the body as much as it does in the mind. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's true. There's, um, I've been reading this author, John O'Donoghue. He's a Celtic Irish philosopher, writer who died in like 08, mm-hmm. pretty young. He was a former Catholic priest and then kind of left the priesthood. His, his writing's beautiful. And he talks about how the, you know, how in, in West, like Anglo-Western society, you have this idea of the body being separate from the soul, the mind. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, the, the body is the gateway to the soul. Absolutely. And he talks about how these senses are very important. Mm-hmm. Like, the set, like there's this idea that to be, a, at least in, in Judeo-Christian traditions, this idea of like separating like the body, the set, like senses mm-hmm. is like a bad thing, right? Right. And instead it is, it's, it helps, you know, it's important in, in and healing, kind of going to that level, because you, you were talking about earlier, you know, you went through yoga therapy training back in October? Yeah. Yeah. Through Sundara Yoga Sundara. Therapy. Yeah. So explain the kind of what have you now learned about now that you, not say not just a yoga teacher, but now right. have, this, have this other healing component. Like what have you yeah. learned about healing in a new, new light? Well, um, I think... A, I've learned that there's so many different layers to what we can do with our body and how we can cope. And, and, you know, especially coming from the background that I have, I was really convinced that, and this is, I think, a very Western idea of it. Um, I was really convinced that, that if you thought of yoga as a pizza, as I think of most things like a pizza, if you think of yoga as a pizza, physical practice asana is like everything but a couple slices. When in reality, yoga, in yoga, asana is like maybe half of one slice. And there's all these other things that make yoga. You sitting here and listening to me and being mindful about what I'm saying, that's yoga. And, and so um, we learned like different breath practices and different ways that, that you can actually calm down your body and your body's reaction to your triggers. So, you know, you know, calming down your nervous system and that fight or flight response. And, and, and I think also, I always went around thinking that I was broken from the things that happened to me or from the situations that I put myself in. And, and it was incredibly empowering and freeing to hear somebody say to me, the way that you react 
is not only normal, but understandable and physiological. And giving somebody who has dealt with trauma for their entire life the ability to say, I react this way because my amygdala does this or because my polyvagal nerve activates this way or my parasympathetic nervous system and my sympathetic nervous system to give them actual Western medical reasons rather than just you're broken and you're messed up is incredibly empowering because that means that there's something that you can do about it. If it's just a breath practice or if it's a physical practice or if it's a meditation practice, but it's, it's giving yourself the power to self heal. So what do we do, you know, in our clinics and, and in our workshops and things like that? I'm not healing anybody. All I'm doing is providing you the tools so that you can heal yourself on a physical level. And then you work with your mental health professional to heal you on an emotional level. to say to knowing the value your value and um and that was something that's something that I still I still struggle with is what is my value and because for the longest time I thought that it meant like what is my value to like other people or what is my value to my society or to my community or to my studio or things like that but in reality it comes down to what is your value to yourself so how do I measure my own self-worth and reminding myself on a regular basis that I matter. Because in our, in, in our culture, it's, it's, if we have self-love and if we have self-confidence and if we matter to ourselves, it's seen as self-centered or selfish or egotistical. When in reality, if I don't love myself and if I don't find my self-worth, how can I help you love yourself and, love, and find your self-worth? And, and, and how can I be true to myself and my recovery and my path and my healing if I don't actually believe that I deserve to heal? And I think maybe that's where it starts is, is really with that moment of do you deserve something better than this? I think it's such a powerful, powerful realization of I deserve to live. And not only live, I deserve to thrive and grow and be something more than what I have set in front of me. And, and having the opportunity to not doubt that when people, because people will question it and people will say, no way, or I don't see that. At the end of the day, like you go home with yourself and you lay in bed with yourself and you wake up with yourself. And so knowing your own worth is kind of, it's like, it's like tying the shoelaces before you go on the walk. I'm really good at metaphors. <laughs> <laughs>
Audio Engineering. And I'm Alec Brownridge, your host and producer. Talk Story is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Talk Story Show. Check out our website, TalkStoryShow.com. Mahalo. Kake Pranayam is a breath practice. Uh, can you describe that? Um, yeah, so you take an inhale through your nose, and then you exhale through pursed lips like you were breathing through a straw. And to really calm down like your fight or flight response and your um, sympathetic nervous system, you can put a hand on your left cheek. Yeah, that's your left. And then um, what I do, like especially when I have panic attacks or when somebody I'm working with has panic attacks, is I like to have them... And this is something that I was taught in my training and actually my therapist went through the similar training. So, um, so I, but I learned this there and it's so effective is you put your hand in front of your face and you blow into the center of your palm. And then you can also put your left hand on your cheek if you want to go full metal to it. (laughs) (laughs) And then imagine breathing past your palm. And you just do that for, you know, a minute or two.